if you have any questions or comments and you'd like them to be on the show, feel free to leave me a voice message. The link for that should be in the show notes. If you want to leave me a message, you can find me on Instagram at Adam underscore Elisha, on Twitter at Mathematically Speaking, and there's now a Facebook group called Mathematically Speaking where we're going to be having discussions after every show, and I'll be posting episodes there about a day early. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. back to Mathematically Speaking. This is your host, Adam Allred, and I want to begin today's episode with an apology, and I'm sorry that it's been so long since the last episode. I've had to deal with some things, and I've had some, had to reflect on how I'm creating uh, this entire show, and I've decided there's going to be a large revamping coming in after this episode to give the show a better consistency with me being able to post a much less heavy creative tax on me since I'm still in school, and so I had to be able to manage all of that and work all that and still be able to create good content for you all. So after today's episode, there may be another big gap between episodes, and everything will start over fresh, and hopefully that will be be a better show content-wise and just in general better overall. So so today we're going to finish our discussion on Infinity, we're going to look at a historical aspect of it and a future aspect of it and how it's affected the real world beyond just mathematicians doing math. So in our discussion, we've discussed how infinity has some paradoxical features to it. There's small infinity actually being larger than big infinity. We talked about all of the the real numbers between 0 and 1, that that. that that continuum has the same size as the entirety of the integers, which is 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, etc., and then 0, negative 1, negative 2, negative 3, negative 4, etc., with just, just those counting numbers. And I want you to keep those paradoxes in mind, because these paradoxes are what had the biggest impact historically on the country of Italy. Italy was the center of the Renaissance. It had all the artists, had all the engineers, all the mathematicians, all the scientists. But the Industrial Revolution didn't happen in Italy, where the hotbed of knowledge was. Instead, it happened in the UK and in the US. And you can argue that infinity is what caused this. Now, these aren't my ideas. These are ideas from research and books that I've read. Um, you can always message me on Instagram or on Twitter, and I can send you the, the the name of the books. But I'm just compiling this information for you because I think the author had a very strong argument. And in the, the when we talk about infinity in the future, it will have uh, my, my own ideas. So how did Italy fall off? If it had all, all of the knowledge... What happened that caused it to go into another Dark Ages, so to speak, and for the UK and the US to start the Industrial Revolution? 
it again it comes back to a tie between mathematics and religion. At the time of the Renaissance, the Catholic Church controlled all of Italy, and most importantly, they controlled all the universities. And they noticed that their calendar was off, and so Easter was being celebrated 11 days later than the actual date. And they would not stand for this, so they hired a professor to fix their calendar. I believe I mentioned this in episode 6, if you want to pause and listen back on that one. And as he was fixing the calendar and doing some calculations, he fell upon the work of Galileo, who was looking into these paradoxes of infinity. And he brought this information to his supervisors, if you want to call them that, and they they did not like what he had to say. They did not like this idea of small infinity because it, it disrupted their the social order and the universal order, the cosmic order, that the Catholic Church provided. And so he got kicked out of his job. He got fired. And this is entirely because a contradicted Plato or uh, Euclid's infinity. Or sorry, not, not their infinity, their geometry. Because in their geometry there is infinity of, in the sense of an uncountable number, but not infinity in the sense of uh, the way that we talked about it earlier with smaller and bigger infinities. And this is all long before Cantor ever got to it that we discussed in the last episode. So what, what do geometry and the Catholic Church have in common? There's a strong sense of order. In, the ca- in geometry, there's proof by exhaustion that you have to go through every... You start with a base definition, and then you are allowed to work your way up only with definitions and axioms. This creates a very rigid world. There's not much change. There's not much uh, creativity or anything that can happen in this world. Everything is fixed. The Catholic Church likes a fixed world. It holds up the view that... God created this world and it is unchanging and it stays this way and our geometry shows it mathematically. There, is, there are no paradoxes in geometry. You are not allowed to have a small infinity be bigger than a large infinity. You cannot have... the Xenos' paradox doesn't exist in a world of only geometry because everything is measured. You're not, you don't have to worry about uh, unmeasurable numbers like square root of 2, for example. And God is not paradoxical, so he made this world in a geometric way. He's not paradoxical, so that our math can't be paradoxical, because our math proves God. This was, this was the correlation that they were making to sustain a Euclidean and Platonian geometry in their universities. And anything that went against that, like that professor, uh, they're, they're fired. And so this battle of infinity began between Galileo and his followers and the Catholic Church. And Galileo lost. His his uh, work could not stand up to the might of the Catholic Church at the time, and the the Jesuits were brought in, which is a a subsection of Christianity, and they ran many of the large schools in Italy at the time, and he could not he did not have a chance. But in Later on, we, we can time travel, so to speak, to the UK and to the US. Thomas Hobbes, who is now known as a uh, political philosopher who, for writing The Leviathan, which is about how 
the natural state of man is brutish and evil and we need government to uh, keep us together. Otherwise, we'd be just like animals in, in the jungle, just eating each other and constantly warring and such. And he tried to use Euclidean and Platonian geometry to prove his point. In the first edition of the Leviathan, on the, in the very back, there were mathematical proofs of unsolved problems that the Greeks had, and he thought he could do it the exact way that the Greeks could do it. And now the Greeks, when they were doing these geometrical proofs, after Plato came along, you were only allowed to have a straight edge, so like a ruler with no tick marks, and a, 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 a compass. So something to make circles and something to draw straight lines, but no way to actually measure. And he thought he could uh, prove all these unsolved problems that the Greeks had with their methods. And he put all these proofs in the back and said, look, I've proven these geometric facts. Um, they were unsolved by the Greeks, but I've been able to prove them. And he tied and he wrote the Leviathan in a very Euclidean sort of way, starting with base assumptions and axioms and worked his way down and said, look, look at this correlation. I must be right in my political philosophy as well as in my mathematics. And additions were being spread around, and it got to America, and the American mathematician John Sylvester got a hold of it. And he was reading through the proofs, and he tore them apart. He corrected, there was a lot of, lot of wrong math, a lot of bad math in these proofs, and so he tore it apart with red ink and sent it back to Thomas Hobbes. And John Sylvester was a proponent of uh, in calculus and infinity and such. And then, so Thomas Hobbes obviously was not if he was such a big fan of Euclidean and Platonian geometry. And then this, the, the battle of infinity waged on again between Sylvester and Hobbes. Again, going back and forth, Sylvester constantly correcting Hobbes's mathematics and essentially kicking him out of the mathematical community, which is why we don't think of Thomas Hobbes as a mathematician today. We think of him as only a political philosopher. And Infinity won in the U.S. You can't have engineering without calculus, and you can't have calculus without infinity. This acceptance of infinity in the mathematical world of the inside of the United States is what allowed engineering and calculus to fully form which allowed the Industrial Revolution to happen, which, in a metaphorical sort of way, exploded the U.S. and then the U.K. So while Italy fell into mathematical darkness, so to speak, America and the U.K. didn't. And the, again, the Industrial Revolution happened because with, without calculus and without infinity, there is no engineering. So historically, that's how infinity is sent back to the world. If you look at the present day or the not-so-near future, or not-so-far future, the infinity, I believe, helps us answer the question of what makes us human. It's a very metaphysical question, very... No one's been able to answer it. Uh, people have tried with the concept of souls and such, but no one's been really able to agree. And I think infinity can help us out. There's not a one-off answer to this question, but I think an aspect of it should be considered that what makes us human is our ability to create abstract thoughts such as infinity. 
our, if you remember back in episode one, we talked about fractals and I mentioned that our brain is not finite in the way that we think it is. It is able, it's as finite as reality will allow because you can't have infinite repetitions, but it is, it's infinite in the sense that it grows in on itself to grow. It does not expand outwards. And this fractal structure, infinity is built into our brains. And we're able to grasp this concept of a numberless, of a valueless number and do amazing things with it. So, I believe that this is able to help us cre- help us create or hinder us from creating AI or artificial intelligence in the way that we want it to be. We always think of these purely autonomous robots and then that take care of everything for us. But how... If, if we're trying to get them to be as close as human as possible, we do have to answer the question, what makes a human a human? And if infinity is part of it, we have to be able to code infinity in a finite number of line, lines of code so that a robot will be able to understand them completely. And, of course, you can always you can teach the robot to learn, and they can learn the things the way we've learned things. But in a finite amount of code, and we have a, rel- a relatively infinite brain, there are some conflicts there. But I think if we can do it, then we can have a fully human AI. And I don't think it's an impossible thing. And I think it's a thing that should be celebrated. I think it's a thing that will allow us to reflect on how we measure progress and growth in, our, in this country and switch it from a monetary measurement to a happiness metric and we won't have to worry about all these little things that get in our way of doing the things we want to do. We can fully explore what it means to be happy because we can have something fully automated doing the meaningless task for us. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Again, I apologize if there's a long gap between the two, but hopefully this new revamping of the show will be able to allow me to create more consistently and higher quality content for you all. Thank you again for listening. See you soon.